Hello everyone and welcome to Anarchy SF, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I am, as always, hopefully, Eden Kupelmintz and with me is Yanai Sened. Yanai, how's it going? I'm good and hopefully so it shall remain. Yeah, so we shall remain like self-identified and self-equal to ourselves. Today we want to talk about yet another science fiction anarchist sorta, I guess work this time uh, a book called The Girl in the Road by Monica Byrne. So I'm going to get us started by like doing the, you know, the boring yeah. biography, just so you know who we're talking about. So Monica Byrne was born in 1981, and she's an American playwright and science fiction author. She's also very active on Twitter, and full disclosure, I'm her Patreon backer, um, well, one of her Patreon backers. And she's written, the, the thing she's known for is The Girl in the Road, but she also has done theater and stuff like that and, and online TV, like she did a series with Vice. But she's most well known for her novel The Girl in the Road, and it won uh, a few awards, the James Tiptree Award, and it was nominated for the Locust Award and stuff like that. And she is actually now working on her second novel, which I'm very excited for. Yeah, this is... I think this is the, her, her debut novel. Uh, novel. Yes. I think she doesn't have another one. Right. So uh, I'm really looking forward to the second one. Yeah, for sure. The Actual Star, I think it's called, although that might be um, <laughs> a, work in, a, a title in progress. But, but uh, her writing can be you know, categorized within the, ter- the field of feminist science fiction. She has multiple times said, both officially and just on her Twitter, that Ursula Le Guin is a, a big inspiration, which makes her in our camp, right? If you go to our site and you go to our 404 page, which you hopefully never see, we used an Ursula quote there, one of our favorite writers of all time, but also she did a workshop where she, the the Clarion workshop, we might want to talk about that one episode, it's like a very important writing workshop, Mm. so she did that with Neil Gaiman, and yeah, so she's very much of that kind of American science fiction tradition. And I think think an episode on Ursula Le Guin is... Something will, will be promising for a while, and then uh, yeah, well, well, <laughs> deliver. Which on. one do you choose? That's that's the question. That's um, well, there's the obvious one, but we'll see. Yeah, that's the obvious one. We'll see what we do. So, um, the girl in the road itself, just to like introduce you to the book, in case you haven't read it, the story follows two women, one of whom is in Africa, specifically making a trek from Mauritania to Djibouti, and mm. the second one making the same trek from the other direction from Mumbai to Djibouti. And I uh yeah. <laughs> I couldn't follow the geography on that one. Geography is like my weak point. Oh, I'm using Wikipedia for this, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew they were like, you know, meeting each other from two different ends of the earth, but not, you know, where it is. I I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I didn't know where Djibouti even is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I know where Mumbai is, but Following this book, actually, I, I looked it up because I wanted to like conceptualize the journey, and it's an interesting choice of a setting, and I'm sure we'll dive deeper into why it's interesting. Um, but what's important to, to mention is that the the girl in, in Africa, she's like a more conventional kind of trip, but it takes a sort of like very interesting religious twist, while the woman in India is making a much weirder trip she's walking on this floating bridge which generates water from you know like the sorry generates Generative power energy, from yeah. yeah exactly from the power of the waves which i think is the most interesting part of the book and it's it's fascinating like how she conceptualized the technology and what it does with with the 
hero, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, and the novel explores these ideas of the female body, politics, climate change, technology, and more. So that's like your four minutes or so on Monica Byrne and the girl in the road. Do you want to get us started on the discussion? I'll just add a couple of things just just yeah. to the description of the novel. So I think you correctly state that the journey, I think Mariama is the name of the character in uh, taking the journey in Africa. And yes. she does have a more traditional kind of journey where... So this is an American writer writing this. And in American writing, roads are significant. So there's mm, a famous... Sure. There's, there's a famous on the road. So the girl in the road has to be influenced by on the road. Um, yeah. And roads in American writing lead you to your destination, to becoming who you are. They're a journey of self-discovery. So she's right. having the more traditional kind of self-discovery where she starts with sort of a lack of knowledge of the world and mm-hmm. she finds out more and more by sort of going to all these different places. Whereas... For I can't recall the name of the other Mina. character, Mina, right? Because they don't refer to themselves that much during the book. Um, right. She's unraveling herself in a way. She already has a lot of sort of multicultural knowledge. She's very erudite, yeah. And she's sort of leaving everything behind. So it's that's another sense in which it's two women coming to the same destination from different origin stories. And I think we're going to talk about a lot of things that this book is, but it's it's a feminist book in a way be- because it tells a lot of sort of stories about different, not only these two different women, but a lot of sort of different women. I only saw this in second reading that I think that there are a lot of girls in a lot of roads in this book. Like it's not yeah. just these two women. They come For upon sure. a lot of women and they're all going somewhere a lot of them escaping something. So, And I think that's where, you know, the Ursula Le Guin influence comes from mm-hmm. because Ursula was also, she wrote a lot about home and roads and travels. And you, you're totally right that it's within the, Amer- the American writing tradition. But I think we can also go as far as to say that it's part of the American science fiction tradition specifically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, in other writers like Samuel Delaney, if you think about Babel 17 and, and books like that, the road is transformative, right? And I think that also, you know, we can, the, the first, first place to start is the very title of the book, like that spin of the girl in the road, right? Yeah. Um, and Why do you it points think that a is? lot. So I'll actually use this to maybe set up my first talking point. One of the most interesting, by the way, as always, we're going to spoil some stuff, right? We'll, we'll, we'll try not to spoil the end, although the end here is very, very interesting, but we are going to spoil some stuff. So in the very beginning of the book, Mina digs into her own body and removes a chip from it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that Monica Byrne actually did that to herself for Vice. She did uh, a piece where she implanted an outfit chip in her finger to see, like, are we in our cyberpunk future, right? Where such a chip <laughs> can, like, interface with other tech. And she actually has a lot of, um, like, psychologically critical things to say about the journey. It was very, I don't know if traumatic, but it was very complicated for her. And this idea of, like, violating the body, it speaks to the title in the sense of what's outside and what's inside, right? And in Mina's journey, especially, she kind of starts to imbibe the outside world inside, right? She, like she gets soaked in the water. The salt is always present. The rocking of the bridge is something that she talks about a lot. It's also like her story is brutal. Like it's really painful, right? Like the first time she gets on the bridge and her legs, she loses her balance. 
She like smashes into the bridge. It's really painful, and the pain is described in such a visceral way. I, yeah. I love that you say imbibe because that's that's like my fear of the sea is like mm. always imagining sort of going under the waves and drinking the salt water and you know retching yeah. or just like the disgusting feeling. And and there's a lot of that. You know, she gets on the road and she immediately gets injured and like it's uh, yeah. So I really like this idea of talking about like how the environment, and especially in in the case of Mina, the very um, late capitalist environment. So she's always under monitoring. She's literally walking on a piece of like maybe ten years in the future tech, but it, mm-hmm. but that tech is being operated by a corporation, right? Not by a state. So her, this late capitalist world, which is constantly invading her body. And, you know, embodiment is a very important part of contemporary feminist theory. Like this idea of the meaning and the politics and power of the body has been stretching, you know, behind us for like 200 years. But we're in a moment right now where feminism especially is talking about embodiment and our relationship with the body as something that is inherently political. So it's very interesting to see Mina's journey and how she does that. On the other side, on on Mariama's side, there's this idea of She's, she's like cargo, right? She's like bouncing yeah. around in a truck. So her physicality is very different. It's like the physicality of a loss of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, she's on this road and she doesn't walk the road, right? She's being driven on the road. She's being taken somewhere. And a lot of her internal monologue is like, what is this somewhere going to be, right? And what was home like and how it's going to be different. So I think it's a very interesting contrast between the two sides and the different kinds of embodiment that Byrne manages to portray. By the way, just as like a side note, she's a really good writer, like technically. Um, yeah, let's get into that for a little bit. And I think it'll lead into my first point. So this kind of approach that she has to the body is why I feel that this is a science fiction book for people who have read a lot of science fiction, because yeah. it has a different approach to how you describe the, the futurist kind of world that most science fiction pieces try to describe. So here's the idea that most science, I don't know if most, but a lot of science fiction authors work with. You want to tell people about the future, right? So you, you try to inject them into a futurist world, but you want to do it with a narrative rather than with a dry list. So you have to have a character. So what's going to yeah. be the best character? So the way they think, a way very influenced by sort of enlightenment thinking is, let's just have the default person like this kind of person who's very rational who just Mm. reacts to you know whatever comes in in the most rational way and that's supposed to make him sort of relatable for anyone because anyone can sort of adopt that kind of viewpoint i mean that's the theory right yeah so you have a lot of science fiction with these characters that are very cardboard characters they have bodies, but they don't talk a lot about their bodies. They're not very interested yeah. in them. The They're bodily like, uh, float, experience... Floating heads. Definitely floating heads. Just thinking about the ideas of what they're sort of interacting with. And yeah. for Monica Byrne, the, the approach is completely the other way around. What she says is something like, if I'm going to inject you into a new world that you don't know, the first thing you have to do is understand what's the viewpoint that you're using to look at that world. You right. have to really understand what kind of body you're embodying for this viewpoint. And only by doing that can you learn something about the world. And that's why it's two characters that are very, I don't know, characterized. They, they, don't, they don't even have, you know, like 
two kind of trope inversions. They have a whole set of attributes that don't all fit together very nicely because they're complicated people. And she invites you to sort of get to know these characters and through that to get a perspective about a new, uh, a new world. And if that cuts into some of the description of the new tech, you know, throughout the book, new tech is not, you know, she, there aren't a lot of scenes where they go and like, whoa, this new tech does one, two, three. It's, it's to the side. It's, sometimes it's relevant to the story, sometimes for a long time it isn't. So you get this kind of special viewpoint, which kind of prompted me to want to talk about standpoint theory. Yeah. So standpoint theory is a kind of academic theory that basically says that there are unique perspectives coming from people who are marginalized that just cannot appear in the mainstream. So by being marginalized, you get a kind of perspective on the world that is just not fully communicable. So that means that if you want to know something about the oppression of women or, or, or black people or any kind of, you know, marginalized group, you have to have someone from that group speak for themselves. Now, taking that into consideration, that's kind of a boogeyman that a lot of people attack when they think about academia. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, these relativists, everybody has their own truth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, only... I wish that was true. Yeah. Well, first of all, academia is not like that, but... Yeah. Even within people who like standpoint theory, they take the measures to go beyond that because here are a couple of problems that are sort of analyzed within standpoint theory. If it's true that you know the the unique knowledge of marginalized people um, can only be understood by them, then that's a reason not to listen to them because if you can't learn, mm-hmm. you have no reason to listen. So usually, so I think so. You, yeah, usually, ahead. what a theory would do is sort of appreciate the kind of unique knowledge that comes from different standpoints, but then not go as far as to say that, you know, you can never learn the same thing without being from that standpoint, not saying that it's really incommunicable, just saying that these voices are important and that we need them within our broader understanding. So I think it's super interesting, this idea of like, you know, it, it almost, we have to mention like one white guy per episode, otherwise they take our philosophy yeah. license away. I think this is really interesting, you know, to think of, of the world as like monads, like in, in Spinoza's, in uh, yeah. Leibniz's terms, that that's two men you got, you got for the price of one. You know, this idea of like isolated perspectives. And I think what is so limited about Leibniz's vision, and that's because he was like a privileged white man in the early modern European like sphere, is those monads can speak to each other and we can learn from each other's standpoints that's like one of the basic skills we have as humans and this kind of goes connects to burn directly both in the book where the bridge is is not just the physical bridge right it's the bridge between understanding right? like how these two narratives meet because mina starts to discover and this is a big spoiler like the mariana is in her past and she starts to uncover the story of her djibouti and her africa and starts to come to terms with this weird, almost Philidikian time travel thing that she has going on there. Like, their ideas start to intersect yeah. between timelines and they start communicating to each other in, like, a religious way. And But more, more than just in the book, Byrne herself actually wrote an article about this idea of viewing the other perspective and specifically how she, as a white woman, 
an American white woman wrote about an African and an Indian woman. So she wrote an article in The Atlantic called Literature Still Urgently Needs More Non-White, Non-Male Heroes. And the subtitle is even more interesting. If privileged writers keep writing what they know, marginalist people groups will continue to feel and be marginalized. So her, her whole thesis in this article is, if I as a white woman only wrote about my standpoint, right, like my monad, my like narrow perspective on, on the planet, then by nature of my privilege, that viewpoint would be amplified. So why, why shouldn't I use you know, the, the stage that I have and the power that I have to write this book and center a different kind of standpoint? So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. I just want to like read a quote yeah. from this article because I think it's super relevant. So she says that she actually traveled to Africa and that's when she started thinking about women and roads and all those tropes that we talked about. And then she says, when I wrote The Girl in the Road, I chose to write my hero with brown skin, specifically both as an answer to what I perceive to be the imaginative and empathetic failures of my progenitors and also as a reflection of a human population in which the common phenotype is and has always been a woman with brown skin. To write a white woman as my hero in a 21st century story felt cowardly in the extreme, not only in terms of literary ambition, but in moral terms, which is a very interesting point. How could I fail to extrapolate the lesson of having been unconsciously conditioned by a male-only set of heroes? How could I pretend that whites deserved to have the spotlight in global literature or even American literature? So... There's so, so much yeah. to unpack in this one paragraph, right? Also, the link like between feminism and then racial theory and, and standpoint theory is fascinating. So, so what do you think about that? So I want to start, I think this idea of, of a white woman writing the experiences of, of Indian and African women has to raise the thought of cultural appropriation. That's a term yeah. that's sort of floating in the background. So let's, let's address it fully. And I want to start by saying that I was really curious whether or not someone has made the case that this book counts as cultural appropriation. Because I would not be satisfied to say, you know, this book has two white men and a white woman's seat of approval as not cultural appropriation. But this is a famous book that's won several awards, and that case hasn't been made. So there isn't any... I, I couldn't find anyone saying that it is an instance of cultural appropriation. So let's talk about what cultural appropriation is and why I think this did not sort of register as cultural appropriation. So cultural appropriation is taking someone else's culture and using it for profit. And there are for your own profit rather than that culture's profit. And there are yeah. two reasons why that's a problem. One of them is that usually that's done to a marginalized culture, which means that you're just stealing more from them after already so much has been stolen from them. And the second reason is that it portrays them often in a very skewed way as seen from the outside, which gives a bad perspective. So why doesn't Monica Byrne gets, get criticized for that? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, you could make the case that she is taking sort of the space from you know, African or, or uh, Indian women to write about their own experiences. But I would say in the current balance of things, she's tilting it in the right direction. So she's helping, you know, readers like, like myself be more open to these kinds of stories, which I think opens a door rather than sort of snatches the, the spotlight. 
And the second thing is that I think she did her homework in a very significant way. Yeah. She, yeah. So let, let me just interrupt you for a second because I know that you haven't read this article. And by the way, I'm sorry for like doing a top 10 anime betrayal and not <laughs> telling you about this article, but I thought it would be cool to like get you like a fresh perspective. So she actually says that she lived there um, like she did in incredible research in India and Ethiopia. And she said that like, even if I lived there 10 years, I, I wouldn't, it, it would be arrogant to say that I caught everything. And she goes on to say that like research does not excuse her from these uh, accusations. And she even thought about abandoning the book, but she decided to write it anyway because she did do the homework and did consider the other perspective. Yeah, and I really think that you can spend 10 years somewhere and treat a culture like objects to be studied and never get it and write a terrible book, Yeah, which is what 20th sure. century anthropology looks like. Yeah. But and I, th- I think I, I'm... But you can, yeah, go ahead. you can just read in this book, and I think that's the strongest argument, just reading the book itself, that she... I don't think she can get into the heads of what it's like to be an African or an Indian woman. But she can do a lot of justice to the culture and describe it in a very loving way, yeah. which I think is important. So let's be Marxists, because we like to be Marxists on this cast and in general. So I'm going to steal like a person from your talking points, and I'm going to bring up Franz Fanon here. I really, really, really like what you said, that cultural appropriation is inherently tied to profit, because I think that's the thread through which cultural appropriation is tied to colonialism and imperialism. Now, imperialism is inherently a capitalist phenomenon, right? Like this, I'm quoting my good Lenin, right? I did my homework, I read my Lenin, and I think it's true. Colonialism, like, involves inherently the extraction of resources and capital from the colonized nation to the colonizing nation, right? In order to do that, you have to break down the idea that the people who are in the colonized place are people, right? You have to make them not just an other, but an unknowable, objectified, non-subject other, right? They have to be objects. And we can give examples like a mile long, but just think about the slave trade and the way that people were treated as chattel and as property. That's not, it's not a coincidence, right? That's the, the way you enable this kind of massive extraction. Which, of course, brings me to Franz Fanon and his writing about French colonialism in Algiers. By the way, Franz Fanon is one of the most underread and brilliant thinkers of the 20th century. And, of course, he's underread because of racism. <laughs> and there's, like, if you... And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to myself as well. Like, if you went through your philosophy BA and you read Sartre and Camus and you didn't read yeah. Fanon, that's because of racism. Like, you cannot understand... Camus and Sartre without reading Franz Fanon. You just, you can't do it. And, and lots of universities would like to tell themselves that you can do it, but you can't. So his idea in books like The Wretched of the Earth and White Face, Black Skin, I don't remember the exact title, is that colonialism doesn't just do violence on the body. It does violence on the idea of a subject in the colony, right? It breaks down this idea that people in the colony are actually people. And it does that, like I said, so that it can extract them. Now, tying this back to Byrne, this is exactly what she says in this article in a brilliant paragraph, the last one, which I'm again going to read. 
So she says, I won't go so far as to say that creators have a responsibility to do so. That is creating more uh, women and non-white heroes. But I do submit that our increasingly global society offers an unprecedented opportunity for all creators to write what we don't know. The defining heroic journey of the 20th century was to conquer evil. The nothing. Sauron. (laughs) The Harkonnen. But the defining heroic journey of the 21st century will be to reconcile the other with the self. That's some good shit, man. That's some good stuff. Yeah. I'm wondering which bait to take. Should I start from the <laughs> beginning on, on Franz Fanon? Because I have a couple of things to say, or should I react to this immediately? I'll start uh, with a couple of things of Franz Fanon. Everything you mentioned is, is of course, true. And you should also, like, everybody should read his Wikipedia page because he had a crazy life. He yeah. he fought the Nazis. He was a doctor and all of that when he sadly only lived to the age of 36. He's been all around the world. He's just amazing. And yeah. he... So why is he so relevant here? Not just because he is a brilliant philosopher and one of the first to sort of write a philosophy of race under colonialism, uh, you know, sort of identifying this phenomena when it was, you know, before it was cool. He started from a very unique place where what he wrote about was a lot of theory of action and phenomenology, which aren't Mm. fields that you usually link with racial studies. So phenomenology is sort of trying to describe how it feels to be us, what being is like. What it's like to... Hold on, are you, are you trying to give a one-sentence definition of phenomenology right now? Because that's, like, not a good yeah, idea. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's just... So it's trying to, to sort of describe our experiences, uh, to, yeah. to sort of boil it down. And theory of action sort of asks, you know, what's involved in an action? Like, how do we initiate an action? How do we even reach for the, the drink that I want to drink? How, how, how are these things even possible? So these sounds yeah. sound, like, extremely abstract... How could they possibly be linked to the theory of race? You know, which is very political, which is very in its actual, very actual exactly. So yeah. for Fanon, that's, that's where the oppression sort of, that's how deep oppression enters. And Fanon has this, the reason he's so connected for me to this, uh, to this book is that he has written about his own travels. And he was a doctor. He wasn't born in Algeria. He was born, I think, in Mauritius. But he, he was educated and, and worked in Algeria, and he works there as a, as a doctor. And he says that in Algeria, you know, he has this comparison of how in Algeria he's seen as this educated man, you know, worthy of a lot of mm-hmm. respect. And in France, he's a black man. And I, yeah. I will also read a passage, one from Fanon describing what it's like for him to be observed by white people. He says... And then we were given the occasion to confront the white gaze. An unusual weight descended on us. The real world robbed us of our share. In the white world, the man of color encounters difficulties in elaborating his body schema. I'll stop for a second. The body schema is sort of like how the body reaches for things, gets things, like Mm -hmm. the basics of theory of action. Uh, Continued quote. As a result, the body schema, attacked in several places, collapsed, giving way to an epidermal racial schema. In the train, it was a question of being aware of my body, no longer in the third person, but in triple. In the train, instead instead of one seat, they left me two or three. I was no longer enjoying myself. 
I was unable to discover the feverish coordinates of the world. I existed in triple. I was taking up room. I approached the other, and the other, evasive, hostile, but not opaque, transparent, and absent, vanished. Nausea. So that's his description of a train ride. And, yeah. you know, this idea Fuck, of taking yeah, really more space, it's so yeah. embarrassing to be a person that people shy away from. And he wants us to try to imagine, you know, as best we can as people who haven't had this experience. Well, where is that quote from, by the way? Just so people uh, know. I'll look it up. Okay. So he, he describes this idea. So they, we, we cannot just like hear, you know, people are mis- mistreated, you know, uh, black people are mistreated on trains. Well, we sort of know that. Yeah, the quote is from Black Skin, White Masks, which we mentioned cool. earlier. And yeah. so we, we know the sort of superficial kind of racism. But he wants to go one level deeper and ask what that experience is like, how it paints like every kind of interaction that you have. And then when you read Monica Byrne, and again, to the degree that she's able to imagine something like that, I think... She does it very well, I think, for for the experience of being a woman, because she is a woman. She has had that experience. And I feel like she describes the experiences of her characters in such a visceral way, because she thinks that that's the only way of getting to know them, of getting to know the world that they inhabit, which... yeah you know, loops us back to her sort of unique take on how to do sci-fi. This idea that if you want to understand the world, you you don't do it by, you know, these cardboard characters, but by the rich characters with, you know, very accentuated bodily feelings, and they sort of map out the world for you. Yeah, you know, now that you're talking about this, this last, like, talking point, I just realized that, like, the specter of Octavia Butler haunts this podcast episode. Like this idea of a woman, a black woman in America, part of the same tradition, supposedly as also Le Guin, Margaret Atwood and all these people. But think about how, I mean, the body is also central to also Le Guin's work or at least some of her work. But Octavia Butler is like viscerally about the body, right? Like Wild Seed and the whole body like hopping thing there. Definitely. And also, I think the word visceral is really really interesting here because even in Ursula's like most embodied work for example Left Hand of Darkness and even in in certain ways Earthsea it's still like a theoretical sort of body right it's still like a body to be analyzed like an anthropologist which she very much considers herself to be whereas in Octavia Octavia Butler's writing and also in Samuel Delaney's writing another African-American writer it's a much more present and visceral and intimidating body in many ways and violent body in many ways so it's interesting to see that Byrne is like able to cross that divide, perhaps, and also envision the body as something that is visceral and like painfully felt. I keep going back to that first scene where, she, where Mina loses her balance and like smashes into the bridge. I remember like actively flinching. Yeah, it's a painful scene to read. Yeah, and I think we we can sort of tie a bow around this topic and, and move on to some of your other interesting points. I uh, I just want to mention that. So why is this so important for anarchism? There's sometimes this kind of divide between the the progressive sides of being left-wing. So, you know, one side of being left-wing is being accepting of, you know, LGBTQ people and people of different races, just because, you know, 
there isn't any reason not to be, right? It's just progressive to sort of understand that these methods of oppression, you yeah. know, exist. And then there's another side that's just about, yeah. you know, analyzing class and sort of, you know, how the rich, you know, oppress the poor. And I don't need to sort of go into all of that. But the idea that these two can be kept apart is in many senses, illusory. To build, I don't know, a really good movement, uh, a movement that can sort of handle all of these injustices is not about cordoning them off and sort of trying to solve each separately. It is about hearing different voices and incorporating them into a kind of vision, a, a complicated, you know, multi-voiced vision of, ju of justice. And I have a, right. a, one of my professors here who's, you know, she's been in the, the hippie protests of the 60s and, mm -hmm. you know, ever since then and stuff against Reagan. And she says that, you know, in the 21st century, this idea of sort of intersectionality, but even really understanding people's needs and having care as part of your movement has really bled in and sort of fixed a lot of the problems that were haunting, you know, for example, the hippie movement, which did not treat women well. And, you know, yeah. some of its weakness came from, you know, its reproduction of patriarchal. Right. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's important for any movement to sort of understand how to look at the world from, from different viewpoints and how to listen to different voices. For sure. Okay, so, so I want to take the discussion in a different direction. And like, we could do this 50 more times because there's so much in The Girl in the Road. But I want to talk about a different book for a second. And it's one that's kind of been really blowing my mind in the last few months. It's very dense, so I've been reading it in bursts. And it's by this person called Keller mm -hmm. Easterling. And she's um, an American architect and a, an urbanist and a writer. And we're talking about a very different slice of American life. Like she's, she's a professor at Yale. So it's like this academia elite. And I've been I reading mean, her book called... I'm pretty sure Monica Byrne went to Harvard. Yeah. So like... <laughs> oh, for sure. It's not that far away. Yeah, you're totally right. But it's like she's... she's you know, she's um, 60 years old, right? It's like, it's like a different social economic kind of class. So I've been reading her book, Extra Statecraft, Power of Infrastructure Space. And it's a very interesting book that has a lot of intersections with The Girl in the Road. So briefly, the idea in Extra Statecraft is that there are so there's software all around us, but not just like a technical perspective of software, but this idea that there are codes which define all the replication of the spaces that we live in like for example the easiest example is the suburb like you see you know the the opening of weeds yeah. all the little tin houses that look the same there's a software there right that tells people who are building the suburb what is the distance between each house what is the shape of the roof what is the color and then the process just replicates it but it's not just um, the suburbs, it's also the cities that we live in and broadband networks. And a she talks about like ISO, mm -hmm. like global standards, and how these, this is what she calls infrastructure, right? The infrastructure which makes the world tick and makes repeatable actions and standards viable. And what she says is that we have to understand like these, this infrastructure and the space that it occupies, for example, office parks, you know, where we worked, um, Yanai and I used to work in like the same building. So that is yeah. replicated, right? It's like a copy paste. So what she says is if we can tap into the software and like recode it, we have a lot of potential for resistance and anarchy in a sense. Like, like instead of burning down one building, what if we could rewrite the software that writes the building mm -hmm. to make it more equitable, right? Like what if we could hack infrastructure 
and and make it work for us. Now that's exactly what happens in the girl in the road, right? Like if you go back in, in Mina's story, that's exactly the idea of her digging up that chip that has been monitoring her. And once she digs out that chip, she loses data into her body. It's like a scene where she no longer gets reports on like her hormonal levels yeah. and her salts and sugars and all that shit. But instead, for the journey that she undergoes, and we'll get into the to the bridge in a second, she kind of learns how to feel her body without the help of technology. Yeah, but I'll, more than I'll just that, say that because that's as like, she progresses yeah. through the this road, she con- she's constantly discarding technology, just chucking it to the sea. Understanding that she doesn't need it. Right. Right. So that's like more conventional anti-technology perspective. Like you could find that shit in the 80s, right? But what's new and interesting about The Girl in the Road is the peace that Mina makes with the bridge that she's walking on. Now, the bridge that she's walking on is infrastructure par excellence, right? It's like this huge project created by this distant corporation to harness the water. Now, one thing that we haven't spoken about and I want to bring in here is the oceans are getting more and more stormy because of climate change. And this corporation is getting better and better and more and more rich and powerful because the waves can create more and more power. But also, like, Mina starts fighting against this bridge. Like we said multiple times, she smashes into it, she fights it, she sees it as the enemy. And peace only comes when she learns how to ride the wave. And then in that weird, like, Philidikian moment, she becomes the bridge, Mm. almost, and the bridge becomes her. And she's, like, able to, like the corporation is using the bridge to harness the ocean, she is somehow able to harness the bridge, right? And through that bridge, she, like, makes the time, communication, travel, vision, whatever you want that's happening with Mariama possible. Now, uh, once like, let yeah. me just finish this like line thought. So, using this as like a bridge, <laughs> get what I did there to to talk about Mariama. She's also very much in a relationship with infrastructure, right? Because uh, her truck is making her way across African roads, and that brings us back to the whole idea of the girl in the road and the trope of the travel and and the hero's journey and all that stuff. And but but there. There's more a piece that comes with accepting the destination, right? With, like, understanding how small your world was when you left it. And that's fine. It's not, it doesn't mean it's bad. But also understanding, like, the planet and the world that opens up ahead of you. And what that makes Mariama, and again, like, major spoilers here, she becomes, like, a figure, a leading figure in the resistance that creates Djibouti as Mina ends up discovering it, which is, there's not a lot of information because it's at the end of the book, but it sounds like sort of an anarchist post-climate collapse utopia, right? Like Djibouti gets washed away by the ocean, basically, um, by this huge storm, which causes this massive wave. But the people who rescue Mina, they, it's been a while since I read the book, they like worship Mariama, right? Or she's like I think Mariama means something, no, sorry, Yamaya, which is sort of Mar- Mariama's, um, the woman she's in love with, but also ego. like the, well, we haven't discussed any of the gender politics here. So the woman she's in yeah. love with, but also the goddess of the ocean, in a sense. And, and there is a kind of ocean yeah. worship where the claim is like, 
the oceans are rising up, our God is coming to take us. Right. And Mariama kind of like goes through this religious transformation and becomes like a messenger of this goddess and like a leader of this movement. And she does that for infrastructure, right? Like this, the thing that takes her across Africa is at the end of the day, one of the most obvious and, and painfully intuitive parts of infrastructure, which is a road, right? So I find it super fascinating, like these perspectives on, on one end hacking technology and getting rid of it and fighting against it but on the other finding ways to harness it and rethink it in in interesting ways um and last thing i'll say is it's also like an interesting departure you talked about like how it's different from other science fiction it's an interesting departure from the polarity of science fiction which is either technology bad or technology good right and this like offers a third point what if technology is complicated i think so this is a book that also thinks that in the future, like today, technology will obviously exist, but also we won't constantly stop to, you know, look at and worship our technology. Our technology will just become the kind of backdrop um, as it is right now. Yeah. You know, we're, we're now right. only able to communicate because of, like, satellite technology and, you know... You know because of infrastructure. Insane am- amounts of in- infrastructure allow allow us to even have yeah. this phone call and then record it and then upload it and we just take that as so much for granted right so i think there's and this yeah. will immediately tie into your last point i think which is how as you say dealing with this existing technology asking how we can rebel against it but also incorporate it another sense in which uh, mariama goes on her journey using infrastructure is that the people she's going with are smugglers of illegal sort of energy yeah. i don't know some li- liquid that's used to produce cheap energy but is also very dangerous or something like that all right so so there are it, smugglers are actually hackers of infrastructure right like they use the existing infrastructure in ways which the people who built it and who maintain it don't want yeah. them to do so we have this kind of intersection between personal journey of self-discovery or self-rediscovery also seen in secondary characters such as mina's partner who's trans and goes through her transition in mina's memory and yeah and i don't know partner or sort of mentor who's this a little bit older woman and i mean older than her because she's a child and we so we see this kind of reappropriation of technology of infrastructure and then a sort of rebuilding of society because the premise of the book is that it starts or for for mariama it starts in a time where india is actually the global power after sort of the right. slow decline of of america which isn't really mentioned by the way the usa it's just i don't remember yeah. it being mentioned at all even uh, just uh, or just to say that india has sort of surpassed it and then mina predicts that the next rising power will be in Djibouti. so there's this mm-hmm. constant change, constant flow of people, of um, ideology. And I think what makes these characters anarchists, and I'm sort of convincing myself that this book is, you know, has, has an anarchist uh, message, not just a, <laughs> you know, very appropriate leftist message, is that <laughs> they yeah. sort of ask, how do we cre- recreate connections? How do we, re- we recreate society how do we rebel when things are constantly changing and we need to embrace change while resisting it which makes the metaphor of an ocean like 
the best here, right? Because that's what you do with a wave. You have to know how to resist it, but also how yeah. to take its power. Right. I think that's a very good point to end this on and maybe to like summarize our discussion. I think it's a very interesting book. And I also love that it's her debut book. Like, I'm really excited to see where she takes her career and what she does with future stuff that she works on, whether books or others. I really hope I get a chance to see one of her plays one day. They're supposed to be quite good. But I think this is a good example of why we should amplify young, fresh voices that are working within science fiction, right? And I'm going back to standpoint theory. One of the problems that science fiction has is one of the problems that any kind of like genre or style yeah. has, and that's that it likes masters. Right? It likes gravitas. It likes an illustrious career. And I want to argue that science fiction should attempt to break away from that. Like the entire genre is about the future, right? The future is experienced by the young. The future is conceptualized and created by the young. Not to say that older people don't have a place in it. Of course they do, and they also affect it sometimes more than we'd like. But if we want new ideas and we want new directions, especially anarchist ones and leftist ones, we need to amplify the voices of young people. And that's why in the last year or so in my reading, I've tried to, quote unquote, drown out the masters with contemporary science fiction. And I know that's something that's really hard to do. And I actually have been having some ideas about how to restructure Anarchy SF or maybe Mm -hmm. add a section of like up and coming artists or young people that we've read that we find exciting or recommendations for like contemporary books. And if you think it's not there, if you're one of those people that says, oh, the golden age of science fiction was like 50 years ago, whatever, I've got some news for you. The golden age of science fiction is now. Like there has never been such a volume of (laughs) excellent, mind-boggling, psychedelic, odd interesting science fiction as is being published today and i hope that we can continue to amplify the voices within it like monica byrne that choose to do something new with it right and it doesn't have to be to be clear it doesn't have to be metafiction or theory fiction or this weird ass house of leaves-esque experience um although i'm reading such a book now and it's fantastic and we'll talk about it at one point um it can also be like a traditional narrative that just does more interesting things with its characters and its storylines. I agree. And and the amazing thing you said that it's difficult and it does take some getting used to because you need to get used to sort of different voices than you're used to hearing. And this, I I read this book as a rather early science fiction work for me before it was well-versed and it was harder for me. But then after you do it for a while and you, you slowly expose yourself to more, you start to sort of realize what you were missing all along and you start to crave it, you know, more and more. Different voices, different perspectives where you start to see, even, even within the masters, that they differ. Some of the masters were okay, but not that great and got way more credit than, than was their due <laughs> because yeah. they were already positioned within a privileged group. But I, I think of a writer that I've only gained respect for, like Kurt Vonnegut, who's a white man in the US. Yeah. And, but when he writes, he doesn't write as a, as a white man. The idea of whiteness is itself an erasure of white people's own culture. Because when Kurt Vonnegut writes, he writes as a German-American who fought in World War II, which is his perspective on the world. And he writes from that perspective amazing books that 
cut so much deeper into yeah. the topics that he wants to talk about because he's aware of who he is. And then you see that other people, and I don't want to mention bad examples because that's boring. Yeah, that's not what we do. You, yeah. you just see that other people can't sort of reach that level. So that's, that's for Kurt Vonnegut. And I just want to end by saying that I don't want this whole discussion to be about how a white woman managed to be like you know, the voice of black and, and uh, Indian women. Um, that's not the case. And while doing this podcast, we, we will be reviewing the work of others. And we'll all, I think we'll always be sort of drawn to, you know, diverse voices because we have gone through this transition of, of reading the so, so many different things that we, we still like some of the classics, but, you know, what steers conversation within us, what we really want to talk about will usually be the kind of diverse, unique stuff. So I think uh, maybe our next book would be an Octavia Butler or something even more uh, representative. Yeah. So thank you for listening. As always, if you want more recommendations about anarchist science fiction, you could go to anarchysf.com. And by the way, we're also on Twitter, at anarchysf. And I thought it would be nice to um, prepare people for what we're going to do next. So next episode, we're going to yeah. talk about Akira, classic anime movie, speaking of like going away from the West. And um, so if you want to like be caught up and, and be fresh for the discussion, go and watch Akira. And if you haven't watched yeah, it, it what the hell are you doing? Close this podcast. Yeah, go watch Akira. It's a timeless classic. So hit us up on Twitter. Wait. Talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, <laughs> like, share, subscribe, regram, do the thing. Um, and Wait, thank I have you to do listening. one thing that we're listening to because I've been waiting to talk about this. It just... Oh, okay. I know. You're killing my momentum here, like the whole I know. summary. Maybe we'll just cut it, <laughs> cut it out and we'll... Go for it. The, yeah, uh, do it. I, maybe, maybe I can do some editing magic. No, no, no. It's fine. So I've, I've watched all of Altered Car Carbon and I wanted to mention it in this perspective and I'll explain in a second. Altered Carbon is a science fiction show on Netflix and it's coming up with a second season. I don't know what that will be like. Uh, I think first four episodes aren't that good and that it kind of becomes good. And... I have a lot of criticism. I don't want to talk about that. I just want to say that that's a show that could have, that should have hired Monica Byrne as an advisor because yeah, every, totally every place yeah. where that show <laughs> fails is about how they don't fully understand how to write the body of their characters. And that's what... Mo and I want to remind you that it's a book. It's yeah. based on a book, right? So. And that's, that's what Monica Byrne just is amazing yet and reading her is like finding a whole new way of talking about bodies and characters and yeah so don't edit it it's fine thank you once again for listening at anarchy sf at twiddle um we'll see you next see time see you next time <laughs>